Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Some think of the Gospels of the New Testament as passion narratives with long introductions. Such a view, however, tends to minimize the theological importance of Jesus' life and ministry before his death. In today's podcast, Dr. Brandon D. Crow will balance the scales. He's here to discuss his recent book, The Last Adam, A Theology of the Obedient Life of Jesus in the Gospels. That's published by Baker Academic in 2017. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm Michael Morales. Brandon Crow is Associate Professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He received his PhD at the University of Edinburgh. He's the author of several books, including The Message of the General Epistles in the History of Redemption, Wisdom from James, Peter, John, and Jude, and The Obedient Son, Deuteronomy and Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Brandon, tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, I am originally from Kentucky and grew up in Alabama. Uh, I studied in college at uh, in Birmingham, and then I did a PH, uh, PhD overseas in Edinburgh, Scotland, after doing a Master of Divinity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Florida. Uh, and so I am. Uh, I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, and I'm currently, uh, since my days of college, been involved in the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, and I am. In this book, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to bring together a lot of thinking on um, on what the Gospels are and how we read Scripture uh, in an integrated fashion. And so what I am building on there is a really many, many years of reading Scriptures in a variety of contexts, and particularly through the lens of Reformed theology, and which I believe is very biblical and gives us a lot to hang our hats on and actually offers quite a bit of uh, of guidance for contemporary questions and gives us opportunity to ask questions and pursue readings of texts that still holds a lot of potential. I don't think all of the questions have been answered. And so I'm coming from that context, one in which Scripture has always been important, uh, one in which the the Old Testament and the New Testament must tie together uh, in an in integrated fashion in some way. But it's also answering a question that I've had going back particularly to my days in seminary, as I read scripture, as I read through the Gospels and continue to do so, the question that has loomed large for me is, how do we read the Gospels? What are they trying to do? What are the Gospel writers thinking of as they write? And particularly as they are Christological documents, what is it that Jesus is doing, particularly pre-cross, pre-passion narrative, why is there so much of that? And it's really been striking to me how this is a, a prominent question that many people have asked, and yet uh, there has at the same time been a, a lack of asking this question for many years, uh, particularly if you go back to uh, early parts of the 20th century. A lot of the focus was on the message of Jesus, not on what he was doing. But if we look at the Gospels as Christological documents, what was Jesus doing 
And what was he accomplishing that had to be done in the Gospels? And how does all of that material we have in the Gospels relate to the accomplishment of salvation? That's a question that has uh, stuck with me through the years. And in this book, what I'm attempting to do is to answer that question, which is a very contemporary one, using the best resources that are out there today, but also doing so in conversation with what the church has said on questions like these for really hundreds of years, yet without necessarily answering the question as specifically as I think that uh, that I'm, I'm trying to do more of that, at least in this book. You take a well-rounded approach in this book. It's not just an exegetical work. You bring in systematic and historical theology, and you note the work of church fathers like Irenaeus. Yeah, thanks. And uh, that is certainly what I've attempted to do. And part of the reason is because I believe uh, we can sometimes, I think, have artificial distinctions between disciplines. And certainly no one can be an expert in every discipline. It's just too much to know. But if you look through the history of the church, you have exegesis and theology are really not two separate uh, disciplines. They are woven together. And so I think that if we uh, try to recover some of that integrated approach, there actually has the potential there to offer some new insights into contemporary questions that maybe are old insights. And if we, I think if we, if we take a well-orbed approach, a, a well-rounded approach, what I think we have the option of doing and the privilege and the, the, uh, the blessing of doing in our day is drawing from many years of focused biblical scholarship that often has much to offer. And yet there's also a richness of the tradition that the church has uh, across uh, across the centuries from, from various different people. So Irenaeus is one person that you mentioned there. And so to study Irenaeus is to study, on the one hand, church history. On the other hand, is to study uh, the way he approached Scripture, but also the way he integrated them in a theological fashion. And so those might be three separate disciplines in a seminary curriculum, for example. But in the real world, I think they are actually quite closely connected and so I think it's uh, it holds a lot of potential to be able to look back through the history of exegesis and the history of interpretation. And I think there is um, a number of untapped resources or or ways to integrate what has been said before with questions that we are asking today in light of contemporary exegetical uh, methods and approaches. Taking a cue from your title, how is Jesus' obedient life related to the idea that he is the last Adam? Yeah, this is, you know, that's a, a good question. And, and the reason that it's so important for this volume is because as I wrestled with how does one answer this question that I mentioned earlier, and that is how does one articulate and understand and put one's finger on what Jesus is doing in the Gospels in light of, for example, the Old Testament background? So many of the questions that have been asked about this in recent years point to the background of the nation of Israel. And there is absolutely no question in my mind that the nation of Israel is indeed important and the scriptures of Israel and the, the national election of Israel, these are aspects of the Old Testament that provide the proper context for understanding what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. And yet, I think that there's another dimension that is sometimes not focused on, and that is Jesus is not only finding a parallel, not only serving as a parallel, as it were, to Israel. But there's a another and perhaps maybe even a deeper sense, a more fundamental sense, 
whereby Jesus is not most closely related to Israel, but he's most closely related to Adam in the biblical worldview. Uh, that is because Adam stood at the head of creation, the head of humanity, being created in a sinless estate, and Christ is the head of a new humanity. Look at the, the special way that he is born through the virginal conception. He is also born sinless, and he stands at the beginning of, as we could say, recreation. And what we're going to see are two heads of humanity, Adam on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand. Now, uh, this a couple of, of aspects to that may be worth noting. Uh, first, the reason this is so important is because uh, the key question, I think, here is how does Jesus fulfilling the scriptures accomplish salvation? And it certainly relates to Israel. Uh, but as I began to wrestle with that question and tried to get my head around what is it that he's doing special, I came back to an old answer. And that old answer is maybe it's an Adamic lens that if we put on these texts, it will help us see that what Jesus is doing is not simply fulfilling a national call to Israel, but actually being obedient in such a way and to the extent that Adam failed to be, whereas Adam failed to achieve uh, the, the goal that was set before him. Christ, on the other hand, is perfectly obedient in every way as this beginning of new humanity. And as he is in conformity to Scripture, as he is obedient in many different ways, as he overcomes sin and the devil in many different ways, what he's actually doing is replaying, overcoming the path of humanity seen through Adam, whereby we fell, we sinned in Adam. Adam as the representative of all humanity, and Christ is undoing that in some sense. This is the, the insight of Irenaeus, the language of recapitulation, I think holds a lot of potential here, understood rightly. And, and the second thing I would say about this is it sounds to some like maybe this is Pauline theology, Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and I would say there certainly is a clear Adamic salvation orientation in and Paul, I mean Romans 5, 12 to 21, for example. But I don't think this is simply reading Paul into the Gospels, and maybe we'll talk more about this, but because the Gospels actually do have more to say about Adam than is sometimes, I think, recognized. And also, if we are integrating our readings of text, I believe there's there are insights to be had from reading Pauline theology and Johannine theology and things like this. But at the end of the day, there is a certain artificiality about that, I believe, because if we believe that the New Testament arose around Christ and Christological doctrines and shared doctrines, I don't believe that Paul and John and Matthew, for example, have three different types of theologies at the end of the day, that they are complementary theologies. And, and so we are, in fact, um, on firm ground to look at Paul and to see if Yes, maybe that does help us see an Adam Christology in the Gospels, but it's not entirely dependent upon Paul. In fact, if we look at the Gospels, I think that uh, that I would make the argument, I have made the argument, that they are asking similar questions to this. They are asking, how is Jesus accomplishing salvation? They are answering that question, and part of the way they answer that is by connecting Christ to Adam, which is less common today in Gospel studies, but if you look at the grand swath of of biblical interpretation and its history, it's not that uncommon. In fact, it would be a little more uncommon, I would argue, in the past hundred or so years, uh, whereby we downplay Adam Christology in the Gospels.
and many would date Paul's epistles before the Gospels. So from a historical perspective, the epistles at least demonstrate that the church from the beginning was well-founded on a Christ-Adam theology. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Now, Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels appears to be the Son of Man. Why is this title appropriate, and how does it relate to Adam? The Son of Man question, if uh, you listeners may be well aware, that's a highly debated area. And so it's difficult to simply gloss over the debates and say, here's what Son of Man means. Now, having said that, I'll do my best to say what I think it means. There is um, at least pockets of the consensus in some circles whereby Son of Man seems to come from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And and I would hold to that view, whereby the Son of Man evokes the context of uh, the glorious kingdom of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 that rules over the kingdoms, uh, the beastly kingdoms, and is in some sense connected with the glory of the Ancient of Days. And if you look at Daniel 7, you have there already in Daniel 7 a contrast between the human and the beastly. And this echoes the Adamic context of creation, whereby Adam is superior over the uh, the kingdom of the animal from that perspective. It also echoes Genesis, uh, excuse me, Psalm 8, which is building upon the imagery of Genesis 1 and 2. And what is uh, son of man that you remember him, take note of him in Psalm 8, 3 and 4, I believe it is. And so there's a uh, there's a, a consistency with Daniel 7 and the earlier biblical context whereby Adam is created uh, to reign and to rule, and Adam has a dominion over the creatures, and that's echoed in Psalm 8. And that's the, the part of the biblical matrix of ideas we have in Daniel 7. And so when Jesus uses this idea, I think he does so for many reasons, but it, it, he's able to uh, – to use this title that is not as common uh, in his day and to begin to pour his own content into it, as it were, to shape the understanding of it. But as you look at what is entailed in that imagery from Daniel 7, if that is indeed the background, then what we have is a built-in Adamic resonance. And so if that's the case, every time Jesus uses it, it evokes the uh, to some degree at least the Adamic background or context from the Old Testament. And then combine that with the way that he uses Son of Man in the Gospels, and it's often associated with some surprising things. For example, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and he is actually below the foxes and the birds who have their own homes. And so it's a it's a temporary reversal of what one would expect from the one who has authority over the the kingdom of the uh, of uh, the created order of the animals. And so if that's the case, if one does see Daniel 7 to provide some of the background for Son of Man, then I think it it opens up the conversation, uh, and and it's an important angle to look at. Not the only angle, but an important angle by which we see that, for example, uh, it may be common to see Adam imagery in the Gospels in only one text, and that text would be Mark 1, 12, and 13. Plenty of scholars see Adam imagery there where Jesus is with the wild animals in his temptation in Mark and the angels were ministering to him as a, as a context that evokes the peaceful coexistence of Adam and the animals um, and that may be echoed as well in Isaiah 11. Uh, but some would hesitate to say that is an Adam Christology because of how exceptional that they have argued it is. That, for example, this is the only place where we see it, so we should not be too... Uh, too quick to say this is Adam Christology. Uh, but I would say that maybe it's just one tip of the iceberg that if we begin to put the pieces together, there are a number of texts that evoke Adam and the authority 
uh, over even the authority over the kingdom that Jesus has, drawing from Daniel 7 as Son of Man, is an Adamic feature as well. And so as we begin to add these up, I have argued that there's many, many places we can see in the Gospels that there is, in fact, Adamic Christology beyond only one text. Now, Joel Marcus is another scholar that comes to mind. He argues that Son of Man refers to Adam. Do you remember if he also goes by way of Daniel 7? Uh, yeah, so certainly Joel Marcus, his commentary on Mark um, has a lot to say about this, and he has two articles that, uh, that interact with in, uh, in the book. And I do believe, um, without looking it up, it's been a little while since I've read those articles. I think he does, but I'll have to just okay. add the caveat in there that I would have to double-check to see if he does that. He certainly does connect— uh, he does connect Jesus as son of man to to Adam, and he sees those as connected ideas. And I think there's some fruitful discussions he has there, although I would also say that I think at times he may push it a little further uh, than, than I might in some particular text. But certainly if, if readers are or your listeners are interested in that question, then the references to Joel Marcus have a lot of possibility to to offer. Let's move on to the other title, Son of God. Adam, Israel, and Jesus are each called God's son in the Bible. Can you explain the theology related to this son of God title? Yeah, the, um, the son of God is Israel is common. Uh, this is, again, part of that context whereby uh, it's, it's common to say that Jesus is fulfilling Israel as son of God. Uh, a text here would be Exodus 4, and 23, where God calls Israel out of Egypt as his son. And it's actually interesting. He connects that to the climactic plague. If Pharaoh will not let Israel, his son, go, then God will kill the firstborn of Israel. So it's all part of that, uh, the plagues there. And, and so you have Jesus clearly fulfilling the, the nation of Israel. And if you look at the temptation narratives of Matthew and Luke, for example, Jesus is quoting in the temptation to turn the stones into bread. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which comes from a context in which Israel is his son. And so there are uh, clearly connections to Israel as son of God, but that's not all we see about, about son of God in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's more and more recognized today, I think, that uh, at least among some, that what you have with Adam is already a sonship theology. Uh, if you look at Genesis 5, 1 and 3, for example, it's talking about Adam and, and Seth, and what you have is Seth being made in the image of his father, the likeness of his father, which is the language used to describe the way that Adam was created. And so the parallels there between the way that, that Adam's son is in his image and the way that that Adam is in God's image in some sense uh, indicates a sonship theology for Adam. Uh, and you have that as well in other texts whereby if you begin to connect the dots uh, through notions of covenant even, uh, some would see in Hosea 6-7 I think this is related. In Hosea 6-7, you have the possibility at least, and I think it's more than that. I think it's a likelihood that in Hosea 6-7, there is a covenant with Adam mentioned. And this was one of the interpretations of this text in the ancient world, that there is a covenantal relationship between Adam and the Lord. And part of the matrix of covenantal imagery is the father-son relationship. I think this is clearest maybe in Deuteronomy. Uh, whereby Israel as God's son is in covenant with God, and God is the great father, and Israel is the son. And so the, this language of father and son, it it fits well a covenantal context. And so if there is a covenant with Adam, and of course not everyone would see that, but I think it is there, 
then that would further underscore the sonship of Adam, whereby he was uh, he was in a relationship with the Lord and called to live a certain way, just as we see with later uh, covenants. And then beyond Israel, we have David, and the Davidic king is a son of God. Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Psalm 132. Some of these texts connect the Davidic king with uh, the son of God and the, the dynasty of David that will be, as we see in the New Testament, especially an everlasting kingdom that is connected to Christ. And so this we can find this in Luke 1 and Acts 2 and texts like that. And so there is, again, a covenantal relationship between David and his house and the notion of, uh, of a covenant. And so when it comes to the New Testament, Jesus is going to be the king who fulfills the covenantal uh, promises to David. He's also going to fit into that that uh, Israel dynamic whereby he represents the entire nation, but not to be missed. And this is where it's important to see the Adam connections. Son of God also has Adamic dimensions to it as well. And so when we read Son of God in the Gospels, maybe one of the first places we go is either to Israel or to David. And I think those are there. But there's also an Adamic dimension. And as Son of God is so often wrapped up with the obedience of Christ, this again points us to the possibility that there is an Adamic dimension to his obedience, especially whenever we consider the way he is born, as I said earlier, and then couple that with the progressive and entire obedience of Jesus as son of God. It goes beyond what Israel could do. And again, I think we are encouraged to think of the Adamic parallels and not just the Israel or Davidic parallels. And in Luke's gospel, the genealogy of Christ goes all the way back to Adam, son of God. Good point. I didn't mention that. Thanks for mentioning that. You mentioned Adam as son of God in Genesis 5. I wonder if that can be correlated with the sons of God terminology in Genesis 6 to refer to Adam's line. Well, yeah, that, if you want to debate an area, then there's another one, Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Right. <laughs> I, I, but I would, I would not be surprised if that's actually what the text is speaking of, something like that. Now, that's a, certainly a debated area, but I lean towards thinking that there's a good argument to be made that they are, are humans instead of some sort of an angel-human hybrid, Claire, but sons of God there in particular. Chapter 5 of your book is entitled, The Glory of the Last Adam in the Gospel of John. Can you give our listeners a taste of what you cover there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. The, you know, I think it was important for this volume to include John, because so often it's the synoptics are one discussion, and then John is sometimes a separate discussion. Uh, but if we have a fourfold gospel, which we do, then we don't, we don't substantially have four different voices, but they are united around the same uh, same Christ. And so what what I would begin to look for there is what is happening in the Gospel of John. And so there are Adamic dimensions there, but they really, I think, emerge closer to the end of the gospel. And as you see Christ completing his work, you see that connected with glory. Now, glory is found all throughout the gospel of John, and it's connected to the works that he does. And there's an interplay between work, singular, and works, plural, in John. But all that Jesus does in his public ministry, you know, John 1 to 12 or so, uh, all that he does there. It's, there's a great deal of continuity with the way that he glorifies the Father, and it says this in chapter 12, uh, he has glorified his Father, he will glorify him again. There's a great deal of continuity with what Jesus does to glorify his Father in his earthly ministry and the work that he has to do. John 4, for example, his, his food is to do the will of his Father, uh, and that may also, by the way, evoke Adamic imagery since the first uh, the the, uh, the first temptation, the first sin of Adam was an improper eating, as we see even in the synoptic gospels in the wilderness. 
But then you see at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is is continuing the, the path of glorifying his Father. And it, it's called in John the lifting up of the Son, whereby he glorifies the Father, which I take to be a sort of combination of lifting up on the cross and then in his resurrection slash ascension. It's kind of one movement in John. But as you get to the end of the gospel, there are a number of really suggestive events and texts that encourage one to at least consider, again, whether we have Adamic imagery here. And one of those texts is John 19, 5, where you have behold the man in a way that most likely echoes Genesis 3:22, where you might have behold Adam. And here Jesus is, is, has a robe and a crown of thorns. And it's an ironic statement to be sure, but the thorns perhaps even recalling the thorns that emerged after the sin of Adam. You have Jesus in a text that evokes Genesis 3, overcoming perhaps even now the sin of Adam as a king and realizing the glory that Adam never uh, quite attained in his death, and then, uh, which is going to be of a piece in John with his resurrection and ascension as he is going to emerge over death. And then we have a couple other texts that I would look at in John 20. Uh, and in John 20, you have... Jesus emerging from the grave in the garden tomb, and this is where you have Mary, who is uh, um, confused or doesn't recognize Jesus and thinks he is the gardener. Now, it's interesting that in the history of interpretation, this has often been connected to Adam, and critical scholarship in more recent years has um, has um, you know said that it may not be be quite that compelling, and yet. Some critical scholars today are beginning to return to this. I can think of uh, uh, one in particular that I quote in the book who says maybe there is actually more here to this tradition than critical scholarship has has allowed for. Maybe there is something to be said for the view that what was lost in a garden, life and blessing, is now regained in a garden. And there you have Jesus emerging over death and bringing new life. And one final text we might look at there is John 20, 22 sometimes called the Johannine Pentecost. I don't know if that's the best term or not. But here you have the resurrected Jesus breathing out the Spirit and telling his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. Now here, if we do read this in light of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 in particular, we have the breathing out of the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit, explicitly associated with Adamic imagery. The last Adam became life-giving Spirit. And so there are Adamic dimensions here whereby the first Adam was more receptive. He became a living being. The second Adam, the last Adam, is now life-giving spirit. That is, he is, uh, he is able to have the authority as the resurrected Christ to send the spirit. And so these are Adamic dimensions that you see particularly at the end of the gospel. But I think John also encourages us to see the continuity between what happens at the end and the way he glorifies his father throughout the gospel. Brandon, you state clearly throughout your work that in emphasizing Jesus' life of obedience, you're in no way intending to minimize the importance of Jesus' death. How are these two related? So the danger in a book like this is that I might end the book without discussing the death of Christ, and then, of course, maybe even confusion sets in. What about the death of Christ? And there have been certainly misunderstandings, I think, of the centrality of the death of Christ in the sense that some have underplayed it, uh, that it's not a salvific death or something like this. But what I see in the Gospels and what I see throughout the New Testament is sometimes we separate things in our discussions that Scripture does not separate. And this is one of those cases where I don't think there is a disjunction to be seen between the life and the death of Christ. 
Now, there's a theological term here, the, the passive obedience of Christ, uh, which comes from Latin to suffer. And then there's the other category, the active obedience of Christ. And often in contemporary discussions, this is anecdotal, but this is my experience, it seems as though these are viewed as two stages of the life of Christ or his, his obedience. So that we have at the end of his life his suffering, and then we have, and that's his pain, the penalty for sin. And then we have at the beginning of his life, uh, or before the cross at least, his active fulfilling righteousness, something like that, his his meeting the demands of the law and there's this discussion do we need both how do they relate uh, maybe we can keep the passive obedience whereby he uh, he pays the penalty for sin but maybe we don't need the active obedience uh, but what what i think we have is a unity of the obedience of christ that we can simply say there's two two ways to talk about it we can talk about his passive obedience which is his suffering but theologically I think the best way to understand that it's not a different stage of his obedience. It's one aspect of his entire obedience, including, for example, in his circumcision, including in his bearing the penalty of sin and the way that Isaiah 53 is used in Matthew 8, 17, for example. He, he bore the weight of our sin throughout his ministry, throughout his life. And then you have his active obedience, which is not just what he does before the cross, but even on the cross, he is fully meeting the demands uh, of the law. And so... What we have in the Gospels, let me use it in a more biblical turn of phrase, we have the unity of obedience and sacrifice. That the problem so often in the prophets is that God's people would, let's say, obey the ritual, obey the cultic ceremony, but their hearts would be far from God. And this comes from the, the text, maybe Hosea 6, 6, the only text Matthew quotes twice, is this, I desire mercy, not a sacrifice. Uh, and it, you can look at First Samuel as well. To obey is better than sacrifice. And so what we have that's a problem so often among the people of God in the Old Covenant is a dichotomy between obedience and the ritual, obedience and sacrifice. And when we come to Jesus, what we have is a uh, getting rid of that dichotomy. What he does is he perfectly obeys, perfectly loves God and loves neighbor and offers the perfect sacrifice. And these things are united in one overarching obedience. And so I think both of those are emphasized in the Gospels, and that the, the terms, the active and the passive obedience of Christ, for example, those are helpful terms as long as we understand them rightly. And so we can talk about the passive obedience of Christ even in his ministry, and we can talk about the active obedience of Christ even at the cross. These are not two stages of his obedience, but they are united in one overarching movement of obedience and certainly the death and the resurrection are important because here's where the final coming of the kingdom happens. He, he seals his work by defeating death, by emerging victorious in the resurrection, which is the great amen to the perfection of Jesus and his life and his message. And he emerges victorious, and this is expounded in much more detail beyond the Gospels in Acts and then in, in Paul and on down the line. But this is uh, this life and this and the sacrifice we see in the resurrection, for example, the way that his sacrifice was perfect because of the perfect character of his life. And so you have there a, a unity of, to use Hosea's term, a unity of, of, of obedience or a unity of mercy and sacrifice uh, that we dare not, I, I think, minimize either one. So I'm trying to bring both of them to the fore, particularly in the seventh chapter where I, I come in and, and talk about how the death of Christ relates to his lifelong obedience. Thank you. That's helpful. Before we let you go, would you tell us about any projects you're working on? Well, um, I'm actually building on what I just said on the resurrection. 
I think there is more work yet to be done in the way that this is expounded in Acts. And so right now I'm teasing out uh, the messages of Acts and the, and the sermons and in the structure of Acts. How does the resurrection uh, fit here in light of what we have in the Gospels and then on the other side in light of what we have in Paul? So that's a uh, that's a fairly major project I'm working on. I have some essays and things on uh, that will be forthcoming on various topics, uh, structure of John and uh, and on um, justification and things like this. Uh, but most of my time right now is, is devoted to Acts, so I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into that as much as possible in the next little while here. Sounds good. Brandon, it's been great hearing you talk about The Last Adam. Thank you for your labors on this book and for spending time with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. All right, friends, you've been listening to Brandon Crow talk about his recent book, The Last Adam, A Theology of the Obedient Life of Jesus in the Gospels. That's put out by Baker Academic 2017. We thank you for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye.